from APM. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. Back in the 1990s, Judith Kafka was teaching in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when her school adopted a zero-tolerance policy. If kids broke certain rules, they would be kicked out of school. No exceptions. And it was frustrating seeing kids with great potential and just know that their life chances were so greatly diminished by a decision that I had no say in. And often for things that really weren't serious, but even if they were serious, I don't think that ending a child's education was the way to go. Zero tolerance policies swept the country in the 1990s, but now a lot of people think they were a mistake. In 2014, the Obama administration asked schools to stop suspending and expelling so many kids. Research shows that suspensions are not effective at changing student behavior, and kids of color are more likely to get kicked out than white kids. Once suspended, they're more likely to get into further trouble and wind up in the criminal justice system. ARW is looking into school discipline in a new documentary that will be released this fall. Lead producer Catherine Winter spoke with Judith Kafka. She's now an education historian, and she wrote about the evolution of school discipline in her book, The History of Zero Tolerance in American Public Schooling. Kafka writes that back in the 19th century, the purpose of education was different than it is today. There was a belief that one of the main reasons why everyone should go to school regardless of their family background was that schools would train children how to behave, how to be members of society, how to be good citizens, how to be responsible. The notion of intelligence was different than it is today. And so, you know, if you didn't do well in school, you were perceived to not have been disciplined enough, to not have tried hard enough, to not you know, have um, put in the work. I was interested to read some of the arguments at the time that punishment was actually good for kids. You know, not just not just sort of instructing them in morality, but actually hitting them or otherwise punishing them was going to help them develop their moral character. Well, that's exactly right. And I think a lot of people have heard that phrase, you know, um, spare the rod, spoil the child, right? But And as a parent, you sort of, you know, you do think sometimes you punish your kids because you think it's good for them to learn that they don't always get their own way. So we have, I mean, I think as a society, we still have this sense that punishment can benefit you if you learn from it or can, you know, it's good for children. And a lot of the things that they did in schools that today we would just be appalled by, you know, making them kneel on sharp objects or stand for a very long time or, yeah, get hit by a hand or a ruler or a switch, you know, or a tree branch or a leather belt. Today we would call that abuse. In most of the country we would call that abuse. But that was very much seen as that this would teach the child not to misbehave in the future and also would build character. You know, they would be able to have gotten past that, you know, punishment and have lived to tell about it. It would make them a stronger person. And there was a belief among a lot of people, you know, if you don't do these things, you're you're not going to raise the right kind of citizens. But it's also important to remember that although corporal punishment was common, there were a lot of people who never thought it was a good idea. You know, it was never uncontested. And there were a lot of reformers, you know, Horace Mann's probably the most famous, but there were a lot of reformers in the mid-1800s who said this is not any way to raise moral beings and that we should use moral suasion and we should convince them of proper behavior instead of beating them into submission. But whether you were hitting kids or you were trying to get them to be quiet because they felt responsible to you to be quiet— it was, it was definitely seen as part of the education process. So you write about the establishment of separate schools for troubled youth in some of the major urban centers. And I'm wondering what the reasoning behind that was. Was it kind of the first example of exclusionary discipline, pulling the kids out of the classroom as discipline? 
Absolutely. Yes, it was absolutely exclusionary discipline. And there is also in a lot of urban areas, the beginning of a racialized narrative there also. You know, the history of segregation in the North is quite different from segregation in the South. And there were schools where black children went to school with white children in the early 1900s in the urban North. But increasingly, when you had, you know, the beginning of the Great Migration and there were larger numbers of black youth coming from the South or their families coming from the South. It was a way to remove discipline problems. It was also a way to, in theory, remove children who were perceived as different from the norm in any way. So today we use the term learning disabled, although they didn't use that term then. But they might call them, you know, mentally retarded or retarded or socially retarded. But if for whatever reason teachers were struggling with control, these special classrooms or special schools were a place that children could be sent because you had, you know, children at that point were legally required to go to school in most places. So this was a way that they could still be complying with compulsory education laws, but not having them in the regular classroom. I'm really interested in the juvenile delinquency scare that you talk about in the 1950s, because it seems to me that at some point in our history, we began to be afraid of our kids. And I'm wondering what spawned that fear. Were kids actually becoming scarier somehow in the 1950s? Was there an upsurge in juvenile crime? There really wasn't. But it really was sort of a manufactured crisis. There is a lot of evidence that there weren't increasing crime rates. There were, you know, there were things that were high profile that got a lot of attention. But I don't think children had become scarier. But there was a lot of anxiety in the 1950s in the United States. There was a lot of shifts going on in the family geographically, the way that society was organized. You might be familiar with all the concern about comic books, right? The comic books were ruining children, which today we're thrilled if our kids read comic books. We're happy to have them reading anything. There was a concerns about women working. There were concerns about homosexuality. There were concerns about increased urban migration. And all that got wrapped up in this juvenile delinquency crisis. But what was fascinating to me doing my research looking at Los Angeles, which was sort of one of the places where they were really concerned about juvenile delinquency, is the things that teachers complained about kids doing was, you know, talking out of turn, not being able to sit still. There was a belief that students were socially maladjusted because of whatever had happened, you know, in their family lives prior to starting school, that they were coming to school with all these sort of psychological problems that schools were trying to address. So a lot of the crisis was a belief that the next generation of youth just weren't going to be well prepared to be good citizens, which, by the way, every generation says, right? Everyone looks at kids today and says, oh, you know, I can't believe this is going to be our future. And we have, there's so many problems compared to what it was like when we were kids. So that's not new. We hear that today all the time. So how does discipline in schools change as a result of the juvenile delinquency scare? Well, the argument that I make is that discipline changed in that it became increasingly bureaucratized. And teachers' authority in the classroom to impose discipline has historically been They've gotten that authority from the doctrine of in loco parentis, the idea that teachers act in place of the parent when the parent is not there. And what started happening, there was a shift away from the perception that teachers were acting as parents. And if you're not acting as a parent, you're acting as part of your bureaucracy, then you need rules and regulations to follow versus just your own personal judgment. And that's what we started seeing. That's the shift that we started seeing in the 1950s which was also tied into increased unionization of teachers. 
And in a lot of cases, Los Angeles being one of them, teachers wanted discipline put in their contract. They wanted it to be very clear what they were responsible for and what they were not responsible for. Partly they wanted to show parents, I am allowed to do this or it is in my right to do this with your child. But they also wanted that to be very clear to principals and administrators so they could say, this isn't my job. I'm supposed to teach English. I'm not supposed to be dealing with a behavior problem. And a behavior problem then was becoming something that should happen, should be dealt with outside of the classroom. Well, how did we get to, see, we have Los Angeles as an early example of a kind of a zero tolerance type policy, although they didn't call it that then. How did we get to having zero tolerance sort of sweep the nation? In 1994, Congress passed the Gun-Free Schools Act, and that was the first federal legislation that they didn't call it zero tolerance, but it was called zero tolerance and sort of the rhetoric around it because the idea was we'll have zero tolerance for students who bring guns to school and they increase that to weapons to school. So that was passed in 1994, but there were, and that was under the Clinton administration, but there was a big push during the Reagan administration to bring order back to schools. There was a perception that either teachers were not supported in their efforts to create order in their classrooms or that their principals were allowing chaos to reign. And there was a big push to either make it easier for teachers to get kids who are misbehaving out of their classroom or require that teachers remove children who are causing problems in their classroom. It kind of, you know, depending on if you look at what the rhetoric is all about supporting teachers, but then the rules that they were promoting were really about limiting educators' discretion. And that's what zero tolerance does. It mandates no tolerance. It doesn't just say, teachers, principals, we're going to give you the flexibility to remove children from your classroom. It says we will require that you remove children from your classroom. And the federal law was only about guns and then drugs, but most districts and states had zero tolerance policies for all kinds of behaviors, not just for weapons and drugs. What was this a reaction to? Was there really a, a horrible crime spree going on in our schools? Well, there were a, there were high-profile cases that got a lot of attention. There certainly was there certainly were incidents of shootings and fights and violence in schools and I, you know, that was definitely the case in the 1970s and I I I don't want to pretend otherwise. But there was also I don't know if you remember the war on crime, right? There was a big, there was a feeling in the in the 70s and it continued in the 80s and up through the 90s that the criminals were winning and that cities in general were very unsafe, that schools were unsafe. But the other side of this then was that Congress passed laws that created money for schools and districts to go after if they were going to use that money to make their schools safer. So now you have money that your school district can get to develop a security system, that money's not there for a new reading program. That money is earmarked for your new security system. So that created, you could argue that it's supporting schools that couldn't afford to make their schools safe on their own, or you could argue that it created a whole new industry around school security. What happens when you start putting police officers in schools? There's a few things that happen, but one thing that a lot of people started noticing right away in the 70s was that when you have either security officers or police officers in school, they start interacting with students in instances where they would otherwise obviously not be. So you have police officers interacting with students 
around maybe running in the hall where you would never call a police officer to deal with a student running in the hall. But now the student has an interaction with a police officer that he or she wouldn't have. Now, there's plenty of instances of police officers and security officers being really integral to a school community and being, you know, a, a person that has a lot of positive influence on children. But, well, there's a couple things. One thing is that you have people in the building whose job it is to address crime. And so they're going to find crime in a lot of places where you might not have labeled it as crime before. You know, how you label an altercation between two students, what constitutes a fight? You know, this is a big debate because there's a lot of zero tolerance policies against fighting. So is a shove a fight or do they have to have cleared the room for it to be a fight? Does someone have to have fallen to the ground for it to be a fight? So there's lots of different ways that you can define what a fight is. And, but when you have security officers there, you're more likely, they're more likely to label it as a fight because that's their job is to break up a fight. You also have now, in many cases, a new union or a new organization jobs to be protected. So you're, it's difficult for them to make an argument, the school's so safe, you don't need us here, right? You're not going to see people saying, we're, we're not necessary here. That's part of it. The other part that a lot of people have noticed, and I certainly found evidence of this in my own research, is that now you have other people in the building whose job it is to deal with the social control of youth, social control of students. And so that means that teachers now are less responsible than they were before for student behavior. Because now there are additional people, not just the school psychologist or the counselor or the principal who they can send kids to, but now there's security. And instead of teachers monitoring the hallways to make sure that students aren't running or to make sure that students aren't out when they should be in class, now you have security officers or police officers doing that. And why would that be a bad thing? Shouldn't, shouldn't teachers be focused on teaching? Well, absolutely. And a lot of people would say it's not a bad thing at all. Um, but it, it definitely points to our shifting notion of discipline in the context of education. And if you see it as something separate and not part of teachers' jobs, then having other people in the building to do that job is great because it's not teacher's place. Teacher's there to teach you how to read or to think critically about you know, the origins of World War I, and it's not their job to teach you how to behave. But if you see education in a broader social context and you think that going to school is about learning content but also learning how to become a member of society, do you want someone in a uniform, maybe with a gun, in charge of that, or do you want the classroom teacher in charge of that? So these policies, these zero-tolerance policies, were supposed to be applied uniformly, and then we began to get data fairly recently that, in fact, what was going on is that kids of color were being disciplined, suspended, and expelled at much higher rates than white kids. Why would that be? There's a number of reasons for the racial disparities in suspension and expulsion rates. But one of the reasons that we see the racial disparity is that the higher rates of suspension and expulsion for minority youth are often in areas where there's a great deal of discretion in how those acts can be labeled, and perhaps also in how an act is being interpreted by the person doing the suspending or expelling. So we don't see these great disparities in terms of weapon possession or in terms of drugs on campus. We see the big disparities in these, what we might call, you know, lesser acts of disobedience like using profanity or being disrespectful to a teacher or being you know, resistant to authority, where there's a lot of room for interpretation. What would be better than suspensions? What should school do instead to try to keep order? 
I knew you were going to ask me that. And this is the tricky part, right? Because this is when people start saying, oh, and, they, and they'll, they'll say, okay, well, we've got this thing called restorative justice, or we've got this thing called positive behavior incentives, and they bring out some new program. But it's actually a very complicated question because any of these programs that now a school district is expected to implement are tricky. Because the, the real question is, how do we get students to not misbehave, right? And what do we mean by misbehave? And even if we have figured that out exactly, how do we get children to act in the way we want them to act? And it's not so easy. So there has to be a lot of change in how teachers think about their relationship to students and getting students to behave. There has to be a shift in how students understand their purpose in being there and also for families and communities. If we don't want robots, we have to figure out sort of what level of disobedience is okay. What's the larger purpose that we have in discipline? What is it that we expect schools to do? To what extent do we want families to work with us or the larger community to work with us in achieving that result? Is, is it extra hard right now to implement any kind of reform in discipline while schools are under so much pressure to demonstrate achievement? I don't know. I think a lot of people would say that there's so much pressure on student achievement that it's very difficult to improve discipline. But in fact, I see them going hand in hand and that you're going to get more learning happening if you have a positive school environment. What we see right now is the schools are being judged not only on achievement today, but also in many places on discipline rates. And so what we're seeing is a lot of playing around with structures and numbers, but we're not really changing the culture in the school. So in a lot of school districts, schools now get marked down for high rates of suspension. So they're doing other, they're doing in-school suspension. They're doing other kinds of alternatives. And in-school suspension is better than having a kid out on the street, but they're still being excluded from the classroom and it's not really addressing the larger issue. So I think... You know, as a teacher, I remember going to a workshop very early on where someone took these two note cards and he said, you know, a lot of teachers think you have to do discipline before you worry about instruction, but really the two balance each other out. They hold each other up. You know, you put the two cards up like a little tent. And I really think that's true for schools, that you would, overall, you're going to have better student achievement if it's a more positive school environment, which means addressing discipline issues. It means figuring out as a school what kind of culture you're going to have that leads to a positive environment and learning happening in the classroom. That was Judith Kafka, associate professor in the School of Public Affairs at Baruch College. She's the author of The History of Zero Tolerance in American Public Schooling. Kafka spoke with ARW's contributing editor and producer, Catherine Winter. You can find a link to Judith Kafka's book at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. And you can also find more podcasts about issues in K-12 and higher education and an archive of more than 100 documentary projects. We'd also love to hear what this podcast made you think about and whether you'll share it with friends or colleagues. Did it change your ideas about the purpose of discipline? Let us know at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Click on the About page and scroll down to Share Your Impact Story. We're on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AM RadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from the Spencer Foundation, the Corporate